Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. When I moved back from L.A. six years ago, a year after that, I went to an 80s concert in Philadelphia. It was, uh, it was a great show, had a great lineup, and I was the guest of Michael Aston from Gene Loves Jezebel. And everyone on that show had done or after did do Cooper Talk, whether it be Annabelle Gwynn, um, Nick Feldman from Wang Chung, except my guest today, and I got him, and he's about to go on tour again with his band Animotion, and he just did a, a, a I'm guessing it's a one-man show called Up in the Air, a musical memoir, which I really want to hear about, because I love that kind of stuff. As a background in doing stand-up comedy, I, I know what it's like to being on the stage, and my guest is Bill Wadhams. How you doing, Bill? Hi, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, that show you saw in Philadelphia must have been 2018. Yes, it was. I moved back six years ago, and it was five years ago, and you guys came in, and that venue is no longer there. And what I remember about that show was they took so long in between the bands. It was weird, like because you came on, and you think, well, like Annabelle just came out, and she sang, and then you guys came out. But you'd think, just play the same instruments, you know, because it was, it was just funny. Like, you would play, and then you'd wait, like, 45 minutes for someone to play four songs. It was very odd. You know, I'm surprised it took that long. We typically, it's typically like a 15-minute turnaround, 10 or 15-minute turnaround on those shows. I don't know why it was slow, so slow that night. But uh, sorry about that. Oh, no, it was great. You guys did, you guys <laughs> yeah. did great. You did great. And, I, and you must have left because I went backstage after. And I saw, I know Clyde Farrington from L.A. And I saw him and Nick Feldman and Mike Score. And uh, I didn't see you, but it was all good. But I, I want to hear about your uh, Up in the Air, a musical memoir, because you just recently performed that. And this, this follows, like, your whole career, right? Yeah, I guess you could say it does. Um, although, you know, if you you go on stage and speak... If you do anything going on stage and speaking, especially if you're doing it uh, as a one man situation, uh, it's just so critical to to two things. One, know what you're going to say, <laughs> you know, know what know what you're talking about and know what you're going to say. And then also um, just know how you want to get from one point to another. And if you start straying, it can just you can run yourself aground into you know, um, you think, you know, oh, I, I might as well include this bit about so-and-so. And then next thing you know, you're just, you and the audience are lost. So it's a project that I've been working on for about five years and uh, trying, doing my best to hone it down to a, uh, to a story that, um, that follows the threads of my my relationship with my father and my brother in particular, because my brother and I both were uh, caught up in the idea of being uh, rock and roll musicians. And eventually he um, he joined Sheryl Crow's band on the Tuesday Night Music Club tour. So that was one of her first her first international tour, as far as I know. And he was with her for a year and he co-wrote a song on uh, her second album. It was called Love is a Good Thing. So the show is a lot about my relationship with my brother and how it how it how we played together a lot of the time. But then both of us uh, were led down different paths and and we come we come back together at times. What made you decide to do this? Because, you know, as you're a musician and every musician is a storyteller. 
but it, it, you really have to tap your inner soul when you're doing a one-man show. Like comedy, we don't have to tap our soul. We just, we can tell jokes. But we try to put a little in there, but we can put that cover, that candy coating of a laugh. But when people do, when comics cross over to the one-man show, there's a lot of seriousness. For you, what made you decide to tackle this? Because, you know, people know you from music. They must sit there and go, well, wait a second, what are we going to see? Yeah. I guess I could say two things. One, um, in, in 2012, I was approached by a musical director of a very fine theater here in Portland called Artist Repertory Theater. And he asked me if I'd be interested in auditioning for a Tony Award winning musical called Next to Normal. And uh, and I said, yes, I got the part. I did 42 shows in a um, in an intimate theater of 200 seats. And it was uh, an experience like none I'd ever had to to be singing and telling this story uh, in a really intimate, visceral way. There's moments where I would there's a moment in the play where a doctor tells me that my wife needs a certain very severe procedure and then he walks off. I walk into the middle of the room and sing a song about how this is tearing me up. And um, wow, it just, uh, I, this, the experience was, was so wonderful to me. I felt the, the presence of the audience and the connection to them in a way that was different, although related to playing with a band. So after that, uh, the the director of that show said you should write a musical so then i thought oh man what does that mean um i explored that for a few years um at one point there's uh there's a musician whose name is benjamin scheuer and he has a one-man show called the lion and uh, the lion started kind of off broadway um and it became a huge hit really he played 500 shows around the world before he retired it and his story was about his relationship with his father and then he was facing cancer he was diagnosed as uh, stage four cancer and he's singing songs about his personal experience it was one man and five guitars and he as the la times said uh, said that he plays the instrument like he invented it so fabulous guitarist singing from the heart in a theater about the size I had been in, what we call a black box of about 200 people. And I thought, okay, um, I'm going to see if I can pull something together to do this. Just because, you know, I I mean, I've always felt like uh, when I write a song that I want to be telling something about something that's true for me. Um, and, uh, And I thought, I think I have a story to tell and and this would be a fun way in this uh, later years of my career to um, to possibly travel as a solo act um, with with my wife, who's she is uh, she's been handling multimedia aspect of the thing. <laughs> so it's kind of a husband and wife um, hitting the road instead of the uh, uh, it can be cumbersome to travel with a band. 
Oh, I could imagine. You know, because you, know, you, know, you always think about it. You know, you, you, say no more, right? Yeah, I, I saw I saw Colin Hay recently in Philly a while ago, and uh, it's just yeah. him and his guitars. And so, yeah. you know, where you, there's not a big bus, there's a Mercedes minibus, you know, with him and his guitars, and I guess a driver, and he doesn't really have a crew. And I think that must be the way to do it, because, like you said, you know, you only worry about you and your wife. You get there. You set everything up. If something goes wrong, you understand. Your wife understands. There's not going to be the going crazy. But if you don't know the crew, you're going, oh, my God, what, what do I do? That's right. I mean, you know, bands, you can say a band is like being married to five people or something, you know. And we've I'm, I'm playing now with Animotion for over 20 years. And we've learned um, we've learned how to. Uh, get along with each other um you know so that's that's great but um but yeah i'm the idea of being able to uh create something uh musical that is not just like hey i wrote some new songs hey guys i wrote some new songs (laughs) because there's so many there really are so many wonderful uh musicians out there um and you know i wanted to do something a, a little bit different I got to ask you when you workshopped it because workshopping. If people don't know workshop yeah. means they go just listeners. They go, Bill will go do it and then tweak it and stuff like that. What was going through your mind the first night you were doing this? Now you know you do well in front of the stage. I mean, I've seen you in concert. People know your music, but when it's just it's you and it's your writing. And what was going? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Because I would think you'd be bordering on both. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I should interject that um, one of the reasons why I decided to pursue this seriously was because um, this same person who suggested that I write write a musical or a theatrical project, um, he introduced me to a director named Bill Fennelly, uh, who is from living currently in Philadelphia, and Bill has lots of credits, including Broadway credits. And he was in Portland directing a play uh, at Portland Center Stage. And uh, I got together with him and had a conversation about one-man shows. And he said he would be interested in helping me get my show uh, up and running. And um, that was about five years ago. And just this past week... um, he, he came to Portland, spent a week with me uh, fine-tuning the show and getting it up and running and doing what we would consider to be the actual premiere of it. But going back to... Um, oh, I know, you asked me the performing and workshopping it. Is the first workshop was in his living room in Philadelphia for 16 people. And we had spent a few days beforehand... Um, discussing it and then i i would work through a scene with him that sort of thing and um and then when i finally performed it in his in his living room you know it is kind of nerve-wracking um my show is about 80 minutes long and uh you know um it was intense, but I, but you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's just like making a commitment to hike a mountain or something, you know, you just, you just go and then you make your, you make your way up and down and then, and then you debrief. And, uh, and I got some good feedback that night. 
And since then, I've workshopped it in various places, from a musical theater school to a bar to uh, a very small theater in, in town here, a 40-seat theater. I, I played there three times, twice in January, once in March, before doing this performance in July. That's awesome. Now, I want to ask you, you mentioned you and your brother. So I'm guessing, as kids, did you grew up around music? I mean, when... When did you start your love of music? Were you guys like competitive or did you both play together or was it a musical household or what got you started in this profession that you've had your whole life? Yeah. First of all, um, my mother literally sang to us from the moment we were born. She has this angelic voice. She even put out a an album. It was kind of like the husbands got together and put up the money for their wives to, 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 you know, to cut an acetate and literally in one of those places where you walk out with like maybe a half a dozen records and you can play them. Her band, her, her group was called sugar and spices. And she would sing lemon tree, very pretty and the lemon flower, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but so first of all, she sang to us and then she taught us to sing around the, you know, we would sing Grace around the dining table. We would sing, um, my dad did barbershop quartet stuff, even though he didn't have as good a pitch. He wasn't solid pitch, but enthusiasm was all there. And uh, he would start out by just, he if he wanted us to sing, he would sing the intro to the song, like, by the light of the moon, by the silvery moon. And, you know, by the time he got to a point, we all come in with the harmonies. So we had that going on. And then, uh, oh, you know, part part of what I tell in my story is that um, my brother had a had a medical condition. Um, my father was trying to cheer him up. And he asked a psychiatrist, how do you tell a nine year old kid? He's, you know, um, you know, break bad news to him. And and so. The psychiatrist said, see if you can get someone who is an amputee. Well, it was about losing a limb. So he said, see if you can find an amputee living a good life. Have him write a letter to Tad, my brother Tad. So my dad went on a letter writing spree. And after getting letters back from the president of the United States, the secretary of the Navy, an Olympic swimmer, he took a long shot and addressed a letter simply to Paul McCartney, Liverpool, England. It, it made its way to Paul's father, and uh, Paul's father wrote back to say, Paul's in the Bahamas filming the movie Help. When he returns, I'll ask him to write a letter to Tad. And sure enough, Tad received a two-page handwritten letter from the Beatle himself, and I've turned it into a song. <laughs> you know... Um, and so that letter made us feel like we were closer to the Beatles. Uh, this was 1964, right after uh, the Beatles' debut on Ed Sullivan. So we saw them on Ed Sullivan, and we looked at each other and said, hey, let's, let's start a band. And we were 9 and 11. And uh, by the time I was 12, I was playing my first gig uh, in Rochester, New York, with the band, B-A-N-N-E-D. 
best band name I've ever had. <laughs> so these are so this is kind of the some of the early fabric of my show is that I'm I've got a pretty you know I mean um, my dear brother Tad has allowed me to share some of the intimate aspects of his story and how they interweave with my own, um, you know, and how we, we make our way to Los Angeles. And then, you know, when you go into the big city and you're an instrumentalist, a singer, whatever, uh, opportunities arise and you, you kind of have to juggle. So a lot of people are in multiple groups seeing which one's going to take off, you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's how, uh, I ended up in Animotion, and he ended up with Cheryl Crow. Now, Animotion. Now, I heard two bands. You guys, the two bands used to play at Madame Wong's. Right. Now, tell me about Madame Wong's back then, because I moved. I didn't move out to LA till 2000, and you know, I I missed that whole scene. And I talked to a lot of people who said how Madame Wong's was different, how the Sunset Strip was crazy. You, because now you're the storyteller. You've always been a story. Tell me what it was like on back then, because. New Wave, or punk, whatever I call it, New Wave, was really emerging. What was it like for to be part of that early, early situation? Yeah, it was, it definitely was exciting. It was, um, I especially liked the original Madame Wong's, which was uh, a Chinese restaurant in downtown L.A., really in Chinatown, L.A., and, um, I guess I lived, I was living in Hollywood for a while, then Glendale. So it's either way, it's very close by. And uh, I heard about this place. And, um, you know, I dressed up in my rock and rolly uh, clothes and uh, went down there. And probably one of the first bands I saw in there was the Motels. And um, their original lineup just destroyed me it was so great uh, i was a huge fan of a guitarist named jeff gerard his brother marty gerard was a keyboard player so these two brothers were backing up martha davis and the sounds of that synthesizer and that guitar were just blowing my mind also you you walk you walk up you out walk up a staircase into this restaurant and so maybe the restaurant when it was full might have hold 60 people or something. And so you have a stage in front of you, a bar behind you. And man, I, a lot of people played there. Of course, I didn't, I, I can't really name off some of the even more famous bands that played there, but I, I, I want to say that the police and Elvis Costello might have played there. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, it was just the epitome of a cool place to play. And then, you know, uh, my dad was a salesman, so I've got a bit of the gift of like, hey, how you doing? I'm here, you know, I to sell myself. And I made my, you have to, you, back in those days, you had to go into the restaurant and meet, meet uh, Esther Wong. And so I said, Esther, I've got a band and I, you know, and typically what they would want you to do is put like a night together. So you've got like a couple other, your band and a couple other, do you know other bands? Or I'll put you to, on a bill with some other bands. And then once you get in the door, you're in there and you can if you can bring some people, you can play there again. And uh, so I don't know. I think it just it was it was accessible. Like for me, the troubadour, it's like you got to go to Doug Weston's house 
So I went to Doug Weston's house in like Santa Monica or just on the edge of West. It was probably West Hollywood. And you go into Doug Weston's house and you just kind of schmooze him a bit, you know, and uh, if he likes your rap, then he's then he has somebody like print up some tickets for you then to go and sell to your show, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was um, all that was thrilling at the same time, um, the band that I had before I met Astrid Plane uh, and her band Red Zone, my band, I felt like we were, I thought we were great. I, I, in some respects, I feel like it was the best band I ever had, but uh, we couldn't get arrested by record companies. Um, looking back, I think possibly it might have had something to do with maybe we weren't very unique in terms of and we were two guitars bass and drums for you know four good-looking white guys uh with some stratocasters and you know fender bass and stuff like that i mean the songs were were you know good but it wasn't like you know i didn't have a my sharona in my pocket you know i was i was playing love songs i was very beatles influenced um, I tried to get a little punky uh, here and there, um, but uh, yeah. So I don't know. That's a little bit of my experience. Now, now, how did you and Animotion actually end up getting together? Yeah, um, I was recording in a studio, and it was actually a school for recording engineers, and I was the guinea pig band. And someone was in the class, was interested in the recording process, but he was, in fact, aspiring to be a manager, and he was managing Astrid and her band. Actually, I think maybe he met, I think he met Astrid after the original Red Zone broke up. So Red Zone was Astrid, drummer Frenchie, um, and a married couple that band broke up the married couple went away it just so happened that the guy in the married couple was the guitarist and songwriter of red zone so what you had was astrid and a drummer they pulled in a keyboard player friend of theirs and boyfriend of astrid charles so when i this guy saw me recording and he thought this would be a good fit for this new band that's developing around astrid and so he invited me to meet them, and I brought them some demos of things that I had done at the studio, and they liked it, and they invited me to join them. I started rehearsing. I had second thoughts. I wasn't so sure about this group. But man, they, had, they also had a, a good music lawyer who was able to, they, they took, we went into a recording studio, the manager spent, uh, the manager invested in recording my songs, uh, took the demo, gave the demo to a lawyer. Lawyer walked it into uh, Polygram Records, and in less than a year, we were talking deal. So it's just uh, one of those, another story where it's like who you know and, and you know, who knows who. And, and in the case, you know, my the band I was in, we had we had no avenues into the into the companies, but when I got together with Astrid, this lawyer had the 
he had the backstage pass to the record companies. Now, once you're in the group, how does how do you guys end up playing Obsession? Because you didn't write that, and you're a songwriter. So, yeah. you know, I always wonder, it must be something where, you know, you want the chance. You're like, this is what I do. You know, I'm a guitarist, I'm a songwriter. Let me write my damn songs. But then the record company goes, well, we want you to put this. I mean, how does how did that come up? How did that end up happening that you guys performed it? And as, a, as an artist, how did you feel about it? That is kind of at the core of my show. Um, although when I say at the core, I mean, it's, 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 I think people will find it interesting because I actually act out kind of like what it was like being in a studio and having this, you know, the producers say, Hey, I've got this song from outside of the band. I think it could be a hit for you. Now I'm the writer. So I'm going, okay. So you either don't think my songs are hits or you don't think we have enough. You're trying to hedge your bet. I, I understand what you're doing, but still, I don't like the idea. I don't, I wasn't even, see, I hate to talk negatively about the song because I was in an interview once on a TV program and I started to say, well, I didn't really, you know, like the song. I didn't, I didn't write it. I didn't like, and man, the interview just went in the toilet. So, you know, people who like the song don't want to hear that. But but when it was first presented to me, I was like, okay, um, there's a line. And I said to the producer, this line, I am a possession, unopened at your feet. That's not me. I don't I don't feel comfortable singing that I'm a possession at someone's feet. Well, that's the way that's, you know, that's part of an obsession, Bill. You know, it's just that's the way. Come on, just go with the program here. You know, let's do this. And so I. And also, you know, um, at first they didn't want me to sing it because the original version, uh, Michael DeBar, who wrote the lyrics and and sang on it, he spoke the verses. You are an obsession. I cannot sleep, you know, and I and they're like, this is what we want you to do. And I'm like, I'm a singer, you know. And so, again, I. I act out in my one man show. I'm on a microphone and and I'm going, okay, this is where I sing, right? You what? You want me to speak it? You know, <laughs> you know. And so it's like it was a process of of discovering like, whoa. And then I said, hey, look, um, let me take a whack. Just let me take a whack at singing. I want to show you what it would sound like if I sing it. And when you hear the final record, there is speaking and singing. If you go back and listen, you'll hear the spoken voice and the singing voice overlapping. Um, so, yeah, so it was it was a publisher brought it to the producer. The producer played it to the A&R department, you know, the artist and rep department. And they said, yeah, let's record that song. And then they proceeded to put like half of the budget of the record into that one song. Hey, see, that's just crazy. You know, it's funny when the artist conflicts with something else, they always, because bottom line is it's like now with the Hollywood strike going on, I know a lot of actors and it's like, no, you know, and I know a lot of TV writers. You, AI I can't do that. You, you know, the, you guys, as they always say, someone said they should be able to create a Hollywood producer, John Cleese or a, a, an executive with AI because they don't know anything. And it happens a lot like that. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. And uh, it's funny. I just um, Holly Knight, who was the 
a, a co-writer on Obsession, recently put out a book, and I'm always kind of holding my breath to hear what you know what she has to say because we haven't had a lot of communication with her. I have had some communication with Michael, pleasant communication with Michael Daybar, but Holly, Holly said, well, they did a more of a pop version than we did. Than we our our version was more dark and edgy and punky of Obsession. Um, and she said, and their video, there's a bunch of handsome men in togas handing out hors d'oeuvres. And I'm like, no, they're not. I, I think she's confusing us with like a soft sell video or something. And I, I, I sent her a message. She didn't even get back to me. It's, it's kind of like, ah, yeah. Well, so at any rate, I'm the bottom line, really, what it comes down to is I've and I have to ask myself this question. Would you rather would you rather have just gone into the dustbin of all the people who tried to get onto the charts um, or, you know, accept the fact that someone else wrote the wrote the song? And and I, I would be I'm happy to have sung a song and I continue to get get out, get to sing a song out there um, and sh and share that moment with fans, because to me, that's what it's about. It's about it's not about like people clapping for me. It's about um, that when I sing the song and I can tell people recognize my voice, there's just a moment of connection and we're going to go on this like three, five minute ride together and it's going to stir up memories for you. And this is a memory for me. And it's great. Well, when the, when the song, because everyone knows the song, when it took off, how did it change your life? I know, did you guys get stuck, get on a bigger tour? Did someone say they have a hit and MTV was very important? I mean, how did it change things for you? Uh, there's probably a lot of things to say about that, but um, first of all, I was recognized. Recognized because we were on our video was being played once an hour, day and night. We were in power rotation, so I went from not being a, I don't know, uh, someone you would recognize to being recognized every time I go out, even in foreign countries. So that was bizarre. Um, uh, once a woman came up to me and uh, after a show and said, give me something of yours. And I said, like what? She said, give me your shoes. I said, I just bought these shoes, but you're a millionaire. You can get another pair. Well, so the perception seems to be if you're, if you're in the top 10, you are, um, you're set, you know, you're fat, but, um, what people don't understand is it's the writers who get money from airplay. And that's where really lion's share over, over the course of years is um, the income comes from, from radio airplay from, uh, from record sales. We would get the band would get about 50 cents per album. But from that, we would have to pay back every dime the record company spent on the albums, the videos, tour support. Um, then we pay our lawyers, our managers, accountants whatever's left we split among six people and it's not much so um i had fame without fortune and that sets up a difficult situation because i was married and um i'm on tour having a blast getting a per diem so it's just kind of taking care of my <laughs> my expense i come off of a tour and i you know and now i'm like struggling to pay my bills and it's hard to 
justify that to, uh, you know, to a wife. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, um, it was, uh, it was, but, but so then it was a matter of how can we keep this thing going or how can we change this to the next level where actually it is, you know, making income for the band. How can we do this? Um, going into the second album, um, everybody became songwriters. Now I'm competing with the members of the band to um, to get a, songs on the record. And uh, I had three songs on the second record. I had seven on the first. I had less songs. But, you know, so that so the stakes got higher with each album. Now, when you were, after the first album, when you were, who were you touring with? Who were some of the bands you guys were playing with? First band we, we were we were out with was Depeche Mode, uh, which was just kind of phenomenal. And we just, we played a couple shows with them. The following year, they invited us to do their North American tour with them. They, were, they invited us to tour for like months. And we turned it down because we looked at the numbers and we could see that the tour itself might break even or be in the red and we're paying the you know it's like coming against money would we would make from record sales and um we were just so like financially stressed that we turned down and you know and that's i think that's one of my biggest regrets when i look back at my career with animotion is um i i i I, I would have liked to have gone on that tour. Um, but at the same time, if I had, I don't think my marriage would have survived. I don't think I'd have this sweet, beautiful daughter that I have now who's in her thirties. Um, that's a real, you know, that's real. That's real. <laughs> that's a real thing I have to deal with, you know? Um, but we went out, we played with Depeche Mode. Then we did a tour with Howard Jones. We did in uh, us and Canada with Howard Jones um that was 85 um and that you know um in 86 we did one-off shows but we didn't actually go out on a tour with anybody how grueling is the road i mean i when i did stand up it was just you in a car and i would only go on like a you know we go on a 10 10 night clip at the most but then we would play clubs in our town in the philadelphia area how grueling is it i mean i know we're it's when we're young, but still, it's people don't get it. They think it's all glamorous, but it's a pain in the ass driving from place to place. You know, people don't get it. You sit there, you wake up, and you're like, where the hell am I? You don't even know what town you're in. I mean, I went one time from playing a casino in Atlantic City to the next week, I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I'm staying in a converted trailer park. Okay, so it was one of those things that you go, oh, this is glamorous show business. It's it's not easy. But how grueling was it for you? Because you guys, would, you know, when you were with Howard Jones, you're doing kind of... Well, um, we had a road manager who's just fantastic. He would slip a piece of paper under our hotel room door saying, you know, you are in Cleveland. You have a, an interview with the radio station at one o'clock. You have a show tonight at eight o'clock. You have to be at the venue. You know, you will, a car will pick you up here, whatever. Um, so 
these days I manage the band. So I'm the one that's arranging every move that we make and, um, and figuring out how that's all going to work out. Uh, but, but, but back then we were, we were just sort of, uh, um, we didn't have to worry too much about all that stuff, you know, and yeah, to get in the bus and drive from, you know, across Canada, uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's, um, it, it, those can be long days, but we had, uh, VHS players were playing the Terminator and, you know, stuff like that, uh, music. Um, and it was our first year of really touring, you know, um, we did a, before Howard Jones, we did a headlining tour in a Winnebago. That was a little tight, you know. <laughs> but um, but I I would say, um, you know, in tw- in 2018 we did 26 dates, uh, pretty con- consecutively, and in, that included two dates in Europe, and um, that was grueling. That was definitely grueling, but. Um, you know, but it was it was kind of rare. We hadn't done so many dates, you know, in previous years. So, you know, we stepped up. We stepped up. This year we're doing uh, 12 shows. Now, now, why did Animotion, why did, why did you leave? Why did I leave? Um, because the guy who signed us left the record company. And he left us with someone who didn't like our band or the style of music we were playing. So he was determined to make us over. And uh, I disagreed with him on, on what Animotion should be. And I saw the possibility of my songs really um, getting the support that they need uh, just going out the window. He was not listening to my songs. He didn't like my choice of producer. We wanted to work, I wanted to work with Stephen Haig, who had produced Pet Shop Boys, Tina Turner, um, a bunch of people. And he had agreed to be to to work with us within the budget we had in his studio in England. And I thought, damn, this is perfect for us. And the guy, the new, this new guy at the label wanted us to uh be produced by someone who was like an assistant producer on the latest heart record. And he literally said he wanted us to be more like heart and starship bands that had given up their original identities in favor of uh, Hollywood hit songwriters or wherever they came from, you know? So you went from heart, went from Barracuda to these dreams. You know, and, so they had a massive hit and that worked for them. And this guy thought that he could engineer sort of like, I'm going to remake the band. And, um, you know, there's no, he didn't flat out say there's no room for your songs, but he was treating me that way. Um, and, uh, and, um, you know, there was, there, there was a couple other factors, but it was, uh, you know, it was a bit of an emotional decision. It, and again, Partially, I was doing it to save a marriage that was like on the skids. Um, so yeah. I so mean, so, yeah. so what do you do then? I always wonder, you know, like because you know I left comedy for a long time. I just do it occasionally now. You know, I, I yeah. left because I just got tired of the travel and whatever reasons. But you're 
you're recognizable from the band and that's something and that's you know that's a drug you know going on stage and people knowing you and saying you know and when they hear that song people i mean that's something that's a drug for for a lot of us what do you do when you leave the band because you know you're talented you know you've, you've had a big hit but what where what direction did you want to go in well initially i thought okay i'm going solo and I did write and record and tried to get a deal. Um, back, this was like 87, 88, 89. And without internet, you know, you're really kind of relying on who can you call? Who can you go see? Who's going to help you get in a door or walk down the street? Um, and I had, I had some possible, some near misses, you know, um, where I'd submitted demos and people actually said, we're going to make a record. And then it didn't, it fizzled, you know? Um, and then, uh, but someone had invited me, someone invited me to uh, said, Hey, my roommate is working at an ad agency and they're looking for someone who can do paste up and layout graphic design work. And they're willing to train. And I said, yes, I went in. I loved it. I, thought oh my gosh i like this i'm sitting at a desk with like you know drafting pens and stuff this is before mac macintosh and this was very aesthetic and i'm using you know photo machines and i'm learning all this stuff i'm looking out the window at wilshire boulevard um i thought i like this and then i eventually got an, a job at nbc in the print ad department and uh, and I was driving around at lunchtime smoking a joint with the vice president of NBC in the creative department. And I'm like, OK, this is all right. And so I continued to write and record. But um, but graphic design became my fallback career. And by the time I got to Portland, Oregon, um, I knew someone who knew someone. And I got in the door at an agency called Wyden and Kennedy. And they were the ones that kind of created the just do it for Nike. And so they've been with Nike almost exclusively ever since. But while I was there, we were doing Coca-Cola, Microsoft. Um, and it was a really, you know, fun agency and exciting and uh, a great way to kind of get my feet on the ground here in Portland. And then there's a great pub scene here. And so I started playing acoustic guitar in pubs and then over the last decade like i have a trio um of a, a a drummer and a bass player who are my son's age i've got sons in their 40s and and i've got bandmates in their 40s and they kick ass and uh we just have a great you know fun time um so but you know when you mention like well i've got you know i've got people know obsession and they know my face maybe but um it uh, it's not it doesn't really guarantee that you're going to sell tickets to a venue. Even if we put up if we put up the name Animotion on a on a you know marquee up here, it's uh, we've because we've tried this. <laughs> it, people are like they know the song name more than you know than than the than the band name almost. You know they know Obsession, and and some people know Animotion, but. Um, it's just, uh, 
it's not a given, right? And so even if I have gigs in town and it says, oh, tonight at this pub, it's Bill from Animotion. It, I don't know, it doesn't necessarily pull. It, 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 it more like pulls from the reputation that I've just built as Bill Wadhams here in Portland doing my thing. <laughs> well, and, and, that, and that's good. But now, now the Lost 80s Live... When yeah. how did you get involved? But that to me, that is one of the best ideas because, as I said, I'm an '80s guy. You know, we talk about it in college. You know, whenever I, you know, that's the stuff. I was graduated high school in '82 and college in '86, so that's my hardcore. That's me coming of age. And and when these concerts started coming together, it was great because you would sit there and you knew you could go to a show, and you would know every song and you would love every song and it would take you back to a certain place. And it's it, it's a it's a great concept. But when did you start getting involved with that? Were you guys in from the get go? I mean, how did that all come about? That they said, "Hey, we want you to play this." Well, um, first of all, the creator of Lost Eighties Live, his name is Rob Juarez, and I met Rob Juarez when he was a teenager uh, in 1985, and he was. He had he was taking photographs for record companies. I mean, he'd found a way that he could take photograph of bands. They give him a pass. He'd take photos and they pay him is very enterprising young man. Years later, he and Dave Wakeling got together and started doing some shows. Uh, but I think when he branded it Lost 80s, I think we were with him. Maybe in his first year that he did it. Um and so it'd be the English beat and us. Uh, I, I don't know if Flock of Sequels, they might have been in on it right from the beginning. But but yeah, um, Rob sought me out um, for two reasons. One, because, you know, we fit the kind of the idea, but also because I'd been nice to him back in the day. You know, I mean, he remembered me as as one of the nice guys of the 80s, I guess. And uh, wanted, you know, he said, hey, let's do this. And so, you know, we've been doing doing it ever since. How great is it? Like when you guys, you know, when you're all backstage, you know, it's it must be cool because you all have stories. You've all had different lives. And is, is it entertaining or is it do you sit there and go, ah, you know, I just want to do my stuff and leave. I mean, everyone's different. But how do you how do you do it? Um. You know, I wanted to do, I started to do a pod, a video podcast. I was going to make it an, no, I was going to make it an audio podcast. Um, and I called it the Genius Insanity Tour because it's genius that they put these bands together. It's insane when they put these bands together. And I just found, and that was 2018. And I was very optimistic. I had my field recorder. I had video. I had all kinds of stuff going on, but I found it was a lot of work, as you probably know. It's just a lot of work. Um, and uh, and I just couldn't keep it up. But what happens backstage is that it, it, it varies. One night we might have um, five bands, seven bands. It's as many in some of the shows as like 17 acts. And so it's kind of insane backstage. Some some venues like the Greek theater is surprisingly massive backstage. So there's a lot of room for everybody. Um, other places like the mountain winery in Saratoga, California is one of my favorite venues. Once I get out on stage, but backstage there's like 
maybe three very small green rooms and then one little common area. So it's real hard to get some space. And one of the bands that I love on the tour is um, Josie Cotton. And uh, she's there with it. She's got an all-girl band. Those guys need a little bit of privacy, right? And Astrid needs a little bit of privacy here and there. And, and Dale Bozio. And so we're we're kind of on, on top of each other. And, uh, and also, you know, like... Some people like Dale doesn't like to fly. So by the time she gets there, she and her band, man, they've had a long day. And and uh and Flock of Seagulls, they they often travel in a van. Uh he prefers to Mike prefers to uh drive. So it's like uh everybody is like, you know, um doing their best to just kind of get back there and be civil and like, hey, get out of my space, <laughs> you know. But there's uh it's it's never it's never quite come to to that, but uh, but it's it's a little bumpy. It's a little bumpy here and there, um, but it's but it is like last year. I remember the first date, and I guess the first date was in Salt Lake City, and we we had not been into this venue, and it was a giant sports arena. I it was huge, and it's just surreal walking backstage with the guys from Wang Chung as we catch a glimpse of the stage for the first time. Um, and you're like, oh my gosh. And then of course, two hours later, you're on stage and the monitor guys are completely screwing up. That was, our, our, our road manager said that was the worst crew he's ever run into. They were just kind of like obstinate. They were pushing against him the whole time. It was just, terrible and then we went out and we started our first song and i've never done this i just said stop stop <laughs> i walked over to the monitor guy and i said let's start you have to turn this up and turn that or we can't play and then i apologized to the audience and we kept you know we kept going so there's there's moments like that but it's it's really so it's kind of you know it's run and gun but when it works it's breathtaking. It really is. Well, how great is it for you when you sit there and you're on stage and, you know, you, and when you check out the audience that there's people and, and there's their kids and then there's their grandkids because 80s yeah. music and everything like Clive Farrington when, when in Rome, when, when yeah. Napoleon Dynamite came out and the promise hit, it was like a whole resurgence. How great is yeah. it for you when you sit there and you go, man, you know, like... I might, they might have actually had that kid listening to our song. I mean, that must just Boy, be a great feeling. I know, I know. Um, it's, you know, a lot of times in these summer concerts, we can see people's faces because it's still light out and it's an outdoor theater. And we can see people mouthing the words. We can see people smiling. We can see people gesturing to us. Um, and we, you know... Um, Astrid and I, uh, we kind of play a cat and mouse game on stage. Um, we, we, um, just sort of like, uh, goof around with each other. Um, we've, we've found a way to like not cross boundaries or make people feel uncomfortable, but, but otherwise I'm going to come across the straight stage and grab her and yank her to myself or she's going to push me down practically knock me over 
um, grab me by the scruff of the neck. And um, we, we're having fun and we can see that um, the audience is enjoying it with us, you know. But so, yeah, um, it's pretty amazing. And then in, the re- in recent years, my son Chris, one of my sons, uh, Chris, is playing bass with us. And it's phenomenal to just look over, see my son, both of us kind of rocking out and enjoying the moment. It takes it to another, another level. Now, when's, when, you know, you've had a long career. When's the first time you heard yourself on the radio? On the radio? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, the first time it was, um, it was Obsession. And, um, and it was getting played in Los Angeles on KROQ. And the first time I heard it, I'm driving my little uh, Datsun 510, you know. And so we're in 85. Maybe, eight, no, it was 84, because the record came out in 84, but it wasn't a national hit until 85. So um, I was in my little old car, uh, you know, just driving from one place to another. I was painting houses at the time, because the record came out, it was getting played in Los Angeles, but nowhere else for months. And so I had to go b- back to painting houses and uh, and then it took off. It started to take off in January of '85. But yeah, the first time driving down the road, I, I it was a wonderful feeling of like, oh my gosh, I'm on the radio. Here I am. It was it was um, yeah, it was exciting. Two final questions. One from the '80s and the the big times of when you guys were really big. What's your fondest memory of that? Okay. Um, well, you know, one that stands out is when we were on our very first tour uh, as a headliner in the Winnebago. I came to Portland, Oregon for the first time, and we played at a club that is used to be called Starry Nights. Now it's called Roseland. I think it holds eight or 900 people. It was sold out. And what I like about the venue is that there is about 500 people on the floor and then about three or 400 people in a balcony. And the entire, actually, it's very similar to that uh, Philadelphia venue. Electric something. Electrify. It's uh, now closed, actually. but Yeah, but it was like that because it, it holds hundreds of people but you can also see, kind of see everybody and kind of feel the room breathing. And I really love the feeling of an intimate setting like that. Um, you know, something like the Greek theater or uh, places that have, you know, eight, 10,000 people. It's almost surreal to the point where I feel, um, yeah, it, I, it's, it's its own kind of surreal experience. But being in, an, in a more intimate space to me where the audience is really with you. And I felt like that night they were with us on all the songs, including some, my songs as well as obsession. And so that, you know, that's, that's one that's, that stands out. And finally, what is the future for up in the air? What do you want to do with it? What, what would you like to see happen to it? Yeah. What I want to do with it is I want to, I want to take it to select cities and play whether it's a night or a few nights, um, 
I want to play in my hometown of Rochester, New York. I went to high school in the Washington, D.C. area, the suburbs uh, in Maryland. I'd like to play there. Um, you know, I do not intend to stream it. I've considered writing a book. I've decided not to do that. I love the experience of I'm willing to share my story in an intimate setting with people who are willing to come out and sit down and spend 80 minutes with me. And if if I could do that uh, with my wife, Kate, in a dozen cities over the next year, that would be great. That would actually be a lot. You know, if if it ends up that I that I only make it to like a few cities and and like that, that's OK. It's um, part of it is the journey of doing it. And and I've I've been very satisfied in in my recent performance. That's awesome, Bill. I'm glad we got to talk. Uh, the tour of people starts Lost Ladies Live starts August 10th. How can people get in touch with you? On Emotion website, how can they find out what's going on with you? Sure. Um, I have a website, BillWadams.com. And uh, an emotion website is an emotion hyphen obsession. If you just look for an emotion website, you'll probably find it. And I think there's a way to get in touch with me through that website. Um, uh, I'm also Instagram, my name. Um, so, yeah. So people go. Go see the Lost Live Aids. And when Up in the Air comes to your town, which it will, go see it. Uh, you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 965 episodes there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter at coopertalk. Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.